Morning. <clears throat> so I appreciate the prayer, but I'm pretty sure that's the first time I've ever been called Pastor Clatter, so <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. Uh, this morning we are going to begin a new series. It's going to be, it's, uh, it's, well, this says Divine Community up there, but if you saw the slide at the beginning, uh, it's called What's the Big Idea? And we're going to be spending our summer uh, kind of going through the big ideas of our faith, going uh, underneath some of the superficial stuff and kind of diving into some of, the, some of the more meaty stuff, some of the more complicated stuff, um, some of the big theological issues of our faith. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Trinity. We'll be talking about what salvation's all about, justification. We'll talk about sanctification. We'll talk about these big things that we don't often talk about. Now some of you probably hear that, and, uh, and it, right off the bat it gets you a little excited. You, 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 you like to think abstractly. You like to think about big ideas. Uh, you like to, to really wrestle with this kind of stuff. And that's great, because we're going to be doing a little bit of that uh, over the next few weeks and months. But others of you are here thinking, uh-oh, it's going to be a long summer, right? Because you don't like to think abstractly. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. They're just two different kinds of people. You're thinking to yourself that you've never liked abstract ideas. You would prefer to come to church and, and just have someone tell you, what, is the, what does God have to say to my life? What should I do with that? And how do I live a better kingdom life? But what's, what I, th- I think this, that this series, regardless of where you fall in that, whether you're a person that really likes to chew on big ideas and think about them, or if you're a person that doesn't particularly care about that, what I think is so neat about this series is that Tony and I uh, and others are really going to be working on giving both of you something. We're going to spend some of our time thinking about these big, meaty ideas, and, and that'll be good for even those of you who don't like that. But one of our commitments is always to end these topics with a so what? Why does it matter? Why, why are we talking about these things? Um, what do they have to do with our lives today? So hopefully, uh, both of you uh, will, will, uh, will walk away from this uh, feeling really good about the series. I'm excited about it. Uh, big topics, big issues, big ideas are something that I really like. So hopefully um, you can all get on board with that excitement as well. So like I said, today we're going to begin with the Trinity. It's going to be our first topic. Now, whenever we talk about these big ideas, these really complicated things like Trinity or whatever else we have, I just want to warn you right off the bat that no matter how much we prepare, no matter how much we try, we're going to have to leave some things off the table. Um, You could study Trinity for an entire year, three years, five years, and still not understand all the aspects. So when we get done today, and and this will probably be the case every week, when we get done today, there will still be things uh, that don't make sense. There will still be things that you're going to have to wrestle with on your own. There's still going to be things that you're going to have to think about, try to to understand better, try to expand on on your own. And so what we're going to do today is is really two parts. First, we're going to break down some uh, of, the, of the big ideas within Trinity. Uh, we're going to think about those. And, and like I said, we'll leave some things unconcluded. And then we're going to end with the so what. Why do we even need to start to think about Trinity? So let's get started. Uh, my guess is that many of you have heard of the doctrine of the Trinity before. We actually read it this morning. So even if you've never heard it at all, uh, when we read the Apostles' Creed, the, the Trinity was in there. We believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There, are, there may be others of you here, though, that the word Trinity doesn't mean anything to you. And, and if you're here with that, uh, that background, that's great, because uh, hopefully you can learn a little bit about one of the foundational things of our faith. 
Now, the doctrine of the Trinity, in its most basic form, uh, says that we believe that there are three separate and distinct persons of God, and, and those are named God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we believe that there are three dis- separate, distinct persons of God, but at the same time, those three distinct persons only consist, of, or consist into one and the same God. If you were to look at the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 25, we, which is one of this, our Christian Reformed confessions, which is something that we, is kind of lays out the things that we believe, question and answer 25 says this, since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And the answer is this, because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. There are three distinct persons, and one, which are one true eternal God. So if you're here and you're one of those people who has never heard of the Trinity before and you've just heard it now and you're still confused, don't worry because my guess is if you were to look around, you would be in good company. Many of us have been in the church for a long time and when we really start to dive into the Trinity, we get just as confused as you because it's complicated. It's a difficult concept to wrap your mind around. It's complicated, it's paradoxical, it's messy. Uh, We can overemphasize the threeness of God, the distinctions of God sometimes. We can overemphasize the oneness of God sometimes and forget the three persons. We've tried a lot of different things to try to explain the Trinity well. We've we've tried to create a lot of different metaphors to try to explain the Trinity so that we can understand it a little bit better. And most of our metaphors, most of our examples don't do a very good job of capturing exactly what the Trinity is, but I'm going to share them with you this morning anyway. So here are some of my favorites. All three of these, at one point in time or another, have been taught to me as we taught about the the Trinity. Um, Some of them are are better than others, but I'll I'll share all of them with you. And you may have heard some of these as well. The first one that that you may have heard before when we're talking about the Trinity is is the, 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 the analogy or the metaphor that Trinity is like water. How many of you ever heard that one before? right? Trinity is like water. It's steam, it's liquid, and it's ice, solid, right? So there are three distinct forms of water, yet all are water, right? Well, that, that unfortunately doesn't, it, it captures the, the distinct parts, but, it, but, it does, but they're not really different, so it doesn't do a good job with the threeness. It's better at the one. And so we tried to go with this way. Uh, maybe you've heard this one before, too. Uh, the Trinity is like an egg. Have you ever heard that one before? Right? Trinity is like an egg. It's got the shell, it's got the white, and it's got the yolk. Right? Three things all make one thing. Right? Uh, that does a good job capturing the threeness, but it doesn't unify them because they're different substances each of those things are. Now this one is my favorite, uh, though it's probably the most ridiculous. I wouldn't use it as your primary one. But I heard this in, uh, in youth group one time, way back. The Trinity is like pizza. And of course you'd hear that at youth group, Right? consists of dough, sauce, and cheese, right? It all makes one pizza. Anyway, like I said, that one's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> don't, don't use that one. Um, so, like we said, we can, we, we can you try to use these examples, and they all miss something. Um, the nuts and the bolts of, nuts and bolts of exactly how the Trinity work are difficult. And I'm not sure, honestly, that this particular setting, a setting in which I talk and you listen and we don't interact, is the best place to hammer out all of those details. It would probably work better in a classroom environment. And so, today we're not going to hammer out those details. If you had come here today to brush up on your super high theology, especially on the Trinity, 
Uh, I'm sorry, we're gonna, we're gonna li- we're gonna, that's going to be one of the things we're going to leave on the table. But there are places you can go. Uh, good places to get started. If you wanted to go to the Belgi- Belgic Confession, you actually have a part of Article 8 there on the bottom of your outline. Uh, if you start at Article 8 of the Belgic Confession and read on, it will talk about the Trinity and actually all three parts of the Trinity, how they are separate, how they work together. Uh, if you want to read in the Heidelberg Catechism, starting at question and answer 25, that's another great resource to understand the Trinity, to kind of think about this super high theology. There are books, there are studies, there are lots of ways. You can take a class at one of the seminaries if you really want to keep diving into that. But for today, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on three parts of the Trinity that may be a little bit more accessible for most of us and may work a little bit better in this environment. And hopefully with those three things, we're going to find some real practical impact on our life as we study the Trinity in this way. So let's begin with Scripture. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, turn to the very first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1. There's probably an introduction, so the very, very first page is probably not Genesis 1, but it's also probably not numbered number 1. It's probably got X's and I's. I should have looked that up. But Genesis 1.1, the beginning of Scripture, says this. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Here in Genesis 1, we see the, very, the, the first very important thing about the Trinity. We see that the Trinity has always been. In Genesis 1, all three members of the Trinity show up, which to me is really very reassuring about our faith, is that they, that they, didn't, they were all there right from the beginning, from the creation of all things. In case you missed it, let me point out all three of them to you. First, it says, in the beginning there was God. Well, there's God the Father. So God the Father is present there right in the beginning of Genesis 1. And the second one is also very easy to see. It says the Spirit of God was hovering over the, de- the, the deeps, the depths, right? So God the Father and the Spirit are pretty easy to see in Genesis 1 here. But you may be thinking to yourself, okay, I can see those two, but wait, there's one more. Where's Jesus? That's a good question. Where is Jesus in creation? I just said that all three members of the Trinity are there. But we have to find Jesus. I assure you, he is there. Uh, If you have a Bible, again, flip with me to John, the Gospel of John, verse 1. Gospel of John, verse 1, reads like this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So if we look at John 1 here, which is the most unique Christmas story we can have, we see where Jesus was. It says, in the beginning... So right away, we know that we're supposed to tie John 1 back to Genesis 1. The, word, the phrasing is the same. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and in the beginning was the Word. Those two things are meant to ride right alongside of each other. They're supposed to be tied. It's the same language. 
Have you ever wondered why John chose to describe Jesus as the Word? It's, it's different, isn't it? It's not normal. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and if you continue to read through John 1, you'll know that it's very clear that when he says the Word, he means Jesus. He, he explains that later on. And so, but the reason he describes Jesus as the Word is because that ties us back to Genesis 1, verse 3. So it said, he's, we said that we have God the Father, we have the Spirit hovering over the deep, and in Genesis 1, verse 3, it says, and God said. God spoke. So what did God speak? God spoke word. That's why John says what he does in the next bit. He says, through him all things were made that has, have been made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. You see, Jesus is the word God spoke. He's the creating agent of all things. That's where Jesus is in Genesis 1, 1 through 3. You've got God the Father. You've got the Spirit hovering over the deep, and you have Jesus being the word God spoke. So we can clearly see the Trinity has always, has always been. God the Father did not create Jesus. Jesus did not create the Holy Spirit. All three have always been and will always be. Which leads us to the next point. So we understand that all three members of the Trinity have always been, but Scripture also shows us that all three members of the Trinity have always been united as one. Uh, you may be listening to this and you say, okay, we have three distinct persons of God, but that means then we have three gods. That's been an argument that's persisted throughout history. But Scripture doesn't allow for that. If you look at John, and we're going to be all over the place today, I apologize for that, but it's in your uh, outline too. Uh, if you look at John 10, verse 30, what we, what we see there is Jesus being challenged by a group of Jewish people. They're challenging him on a bunch of different things. And in this interaction, Jesus explicitly says, I and the Father are one, the same, not distinct from each other. That they are part, they're distinct, but not different people. They're the same. And actually, it's quite a long interaction, and twice during this interaction, Jesus explicitly claims to be God. He implicitly, uh, he implicitly claims to be God, God far more than that, but it, like, he, he says that explicitly, just like we said here, I and the Father are one, twice. So if that's the case, then, it leaves us with no other choice than to accept that the two of them are together. And C.S. Lewis said that as well. You may have heard this quote before, but it does it does such a good job of explaining what we're talking about here. It's from Mere Christianity. It says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, he would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or else would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either he was a man and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can, shut, you, can, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So we see here that Jesus and God the Father are scripturally declared to be one. And we have to accept that as true or reject Jesus as our Savior. We can't, leave, we can't have it any other way. But that does leave the question, then where does the Holy Spirit fit into this? In John 14, 23, Jesus says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching." My Father will love him, them, sorry, my Father will love them, and we will come and make our home within them. What Jesus is saying here is that there's going to be a day in which we, them, we being God the Father and Jesus, will make their, their home within people. And we know from the context of the rest of that section and from Pentecost that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit coming in and dwelling within us. Meaning Jesus has associated both himself and God the Father with the Holy Spirit as being one. So hopefully we're still together, but we've looked at two different things. We've said said that the Trinity has always been, and the Trinity has always been united as one. God has revealed to himself to us in three persons, each of which are fully God, each, each of which are important, as important as the others, each of which are as powerful as the others, each of which are as loving as the, uh, the others. And yet each of us shows us a different side or a different distinction of God. When we look at Jesus, we see God fully. When we look to the Father, we see God fully. When we experience the Holy Spirit, we are experiencing God fully. But when we look at them together, we understand the complex love and power of God in the fullest way possible. God is constantly calling us to look at each part of the Trinity separately and together. Which leads us to the final understanding of the Trinity that we're going to look at today. The Trinity has always existed from the beginning of time. They have always existed together as one, each part being fully God. And yet God has revealed himself to us in three distinct persons. Each of those persons is represented in the Bible as being distinct from each other, separate from each other, or not separate, but different from each other. And each one interacts with humanity in the world a little differently. So let's just begin by walking through all three. God the Father one of the pieces of the Trinity, is most clearly seen in the Old Testament. He's not not in the New Testament. Clearly he is in the New Testament. But we get to see him most clearly in the Old Testament. He's he's, He's got more stories about him in the Old Testament. And what we see when we look at God the Father in the Old Testament is we see that he's transcendent, that he's above, that he's high up. Now he is able to be heard, so he's different from Allah, which Muslims would say that's the same God who is so transcendent that you can't access him. He's different than that. He speaks to us. He fills us. He he interacts with humanity, but he is unable to be seen. I mean with your eyes. Let me explain. When Moses is on Sinai, he asks God if he can see God's face. If you remember that story. Now he had had conversations with God. He had seen God work. He had seen miracles happen, but he had not seen God's face. 
And so he asks if he can. And if you remember how the story goes, God tells Moses that it is not possible for him to see God's face, that no one can see God's face and live, right? God does let Moses see the spot at which he once was, right, or his back, depending on your translation, but he can't allow him to actually look on it. God speaks with many people throughout the Old Testament, but he's not with them physically. His glory fills, his power moves, his voice speaks, but his face is not seen. But Jesus changes all that, doesn't he? Until Jesus, God was not with his people physically. Post-fall, there's argument for pre-fall, but we'll leave that for a different day. But Jesus is fully present with his people physically. He takes on a body. He becomes one of us. He gives us an opportunity to see the face of God. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus allows us to experience God in a new and different way. He talks to us. He walks with us. He touches us. And yet, through all of that, he continues to do the work his Father, God the Father, set forth to accomplish. He even says, not my will be done, but yours. Now we need to pause for just a minute because this is important. In order for, in order for us to understand how, how, how Jesus and God the Father are separate yet united in mission, we have to understand what the mission is. When we fell, back in Genesis 3, when humanity fell, we destroyed three relationships. We destroyed a relationship with God, we destroyed a relationship with each other, and we destroyed our relationship with nature, right? Now, at that point, God could have said, good try, guys. Good try, Adam and Eve. Well done, but I told, or not well done, good try. I told you not to eat of the fruit. You screwed up, so you're done. It's over. I told you you were gonna die. He could have wiped Adam and Eve off, been just, and started over. But he doesn't. Instead, back in Genesis 3, what he says to us, it says, Adam and Eve, humanity, you and I, instead of starting over, instead of me wiping out and trying this again, you and I are going to work to put those relationships back together, to restore what was broken. It's the story of the Old Testament, the purpose of the law, and it's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus worked to restore those three relationships. His death and resurrection on the cross restore our relationship with God, the Father, doesn't, doesn't it? He spends the majority of his ministry teaching us how to restore our relationships with each other. Read through the Sermon on the Mount. But that's not it. He also spends a significant amount of time restoring our relationship with nature. What does he do? He heals the sick. He calms the storm. He walks on water. He restores the broken things of this world. Jesus allowed us to experience God in a new way, but not taking anything away from God the Father, but giving us a more complete picture of the fullness of God's complexity. While at the same time, working towards the very thing that God, that God the Father set in motion so long before. Jesus changes the way we interact with God the Father in the ways we've just expressed, and the Holy Spirit does the same thing. So we talked about the distinction between God the Father and Jesus, and now we'll talk about the distinction between the two of them and the Holy Spirit. God the Father and Jesus both function in the world 
externally of us, right? God speaks, and he's external from us. And though there are times in which people are filled and, and, and that leaves, God, the Holy Spirit works in the Old Testament, too. We talked about that two weeks ago at Pentecost. But God the Father and Jesus both function externally, outside of us. But the Spirit doesn't, right? We talked a few weeks ago at Pentecost about how the Spirit fills each of us, allowing us to interact with God minute by minute, day by day, inside of ourselves, functioning differently from the Father and Jesus, and yet proclaiming the same message, the message of the restoration of all things, the restoration of the broken relationships that were destroyed in Genesis 3. And we see that in John 14, verse 25, which says this, All of this I have spoken while still with you. This is Jesus speaking. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all, of, all, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So we see here that the Holy Spirit speaks as an advocate for Jesus. He reminds us of what Jesus taught. Working together with the other two, God the Father and, and Jesus, uh, to accomplish the mission set forth in Genesis 3. So you see, each member of this trinity is distinct from one another, but they work together, functioning differently to bring about the restoration of all things. Though they express different characteristics of God and interact with the world differently, they, are, they nevertheless are not separate, but together give us a more complete understanding of the fullness of God, while each individually being fully God. Deep breath, right? Now I get it. It's, it's hard to chew on. You may be sitting here, some of you may be sitting here saying, I have only a little bit of an idea of what you just said. I understand that. It, it's tough. This was, that was the first part. That was the, the abstract, chewy part. Uh, and you may be thinking to yourself right now, so what? Right? This is, this is tricky. This is hard. It, it hurts my brain to think about. It hurts mine too when you really start to dive into it. So why does it matter? There's some, like we've already said, there are big sections of the nature of the Trinity that we didn't even get to today. And there, and there probably are sections about what, of, of the stuff that we just talked about that don't make sense. So does it even matter whether or not we think about it? That's a fair question. Some of you may be thinking that. The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord which means the proper reverence towards, the proper understanding of, is the beginning of all knowledge and wisdom. So when we begin to think about and understand who God is, we begin to understand his personality, we begin to understand his character, we begin to understand his love for us, his desires for us. In order for us to understand how we are to live within this world, we have to be confident in the fact that God wants what's best for us. Because otherwise we can't understand what we're meant to do. And honestly, to understand that God wants what's best for us is a lot easier said than done. My guess is that each of you have had a time in your life, and I'm included in this, in which you knew the right thing to do. And even the moral right thing to do. You knew that this is what should be done if you were to listen to what God had told you, the way God told you to live. And yet, when you thought it through, 
You thought there was absolutely no way that that was what was best for you. The repercussions would be too much for you to handle. Essentially, you didn't trust that God's way is the best way. I do that far more often than I should. My guess is many of us do. Because we live in a world that's complicated. The right thing is not always, first of all, easy to see. And second of all, the right thing, sometimes the positive long-term outcome may be impossible to discern within the moment and requires an immense amount of trust in what God has told us to do. The world we live in offers us a million better solutions to our problems. Easier solutions, more comfortable, comfortable solutions, but all of which, if contrary to God's way, will only end in emptiness. To wade through this mess, we, not, we, we need not only understand what God has taught us, we need to understand him, who he is. To understand what it means to truly live a kingdom life, we have to know who the king of the kingdom is, right? If we're going to begin to understand this world that we live in, and I don't mean understand the facts of the world that we live in, but I mean to understand the bigger elements, the things that drive, drive us that are behind things. If we're going to begin to understand our place within this world, we must first understand God. We must understand who he is how he has revealed himself, and how to live in relationship with him. Understanding the Trinity, whether we understand it in depth or have just started to scratch the surface today, helps us understand our God, which inevitably draws us towards a more intimate relationship with him. And that relationship is key to everything else in our Christian life. Back in Genesis 3, we humans screwed up the earth. We damaged our relationship with our creator. We broke our relationships with each other and creation itself longs for restoration of all things. Since that moment, God has been revealing himself to all people with the expressed purpose of joining up with us to put this messed up place back together. So why do we need to, why do we need to think about Trinity? Because to understand Trinity is to understand where you fit within that story. To understand the Trinity is to understand, God, God, to understand God's love for us and his desire, to, for, his desire for us to know him more completely. Whether it's each individual person, and you can spend a lot of time and you should get to know each individual person of the Trinity on their own. But you should also spend time getting to know each member of the Trinity as, how, as the way they work together in their beautifully divine community. To understand the Trinity is to begin to move into a deeper, more intimate relationship with your Creator and begin to work with Him towards the restoration of all things through the salvation given through Jesus Christ, but also the power available through the Holy Spirit. To understand the Trinity creates a, a personal, intimate, loving relationship with your Creator, which is the beginning of all knowledge and understanding. It's the beginning of being able to work towards the redemptive mission that has existed since Genesis 3. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for how you've revealed yourself to us throughout Scripture. God, we pray for your wisdom and understanding and, and even how we get to know you better. We know that you're far too big for us to completely un ever understand, even if we had an eternity to try to figure that out. But we pray that you give us a desire in each of us to continually work towards learning a little bit more about you each and every day of our lives so that we can create a better, more, deeper, more deep, intimate relationship with you each and every day so that we can live the kind of kingdom lives you've called us to live. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you stand to sing with us? Um.